for choosing this BDSM podcast, and I'm delighted to be with Kieran O'Sullivan, who is internationally renowned, and that was reflected by his having over 9,000 listens to his previous BDSM podcast. Welcome, Kieran. Thank you very much. Now let's begin by just having you briefly recap the three main points from the previous chat before we launch into the new content. I guess uh, the first thing we discussed the last day was that um, back pain, uh, like a lot of painful conditions, isn't explained by things we see on scans. So we used to think that seeing things like disc bulges and disc degeneration were pretty important in back pain, whereas increasingly it looks like they're just one little part of the problem that is back pain. And what about physical factors like load? Do they explain everything? Um, again, like pathology, they're probably a contributing factor, but nowhere near as important as they as they were. So, for example, physiotherapists and lots of professionals spend a lot of time looking at sitting posture and how people bend and lift and so on. And it's not irrelevant, but again, on its own, is it's just one part of the picture. And Kieran, I really enjoyed the fact that you said that there were a range of different treatments available, but they probably don't work in conjunction in a shotgun approach. you want to take a minute to just clarify that? Yeah, sure. So I, th- I think one of the things we're um, talking about in our philosophy is the importance of having a range of factors that we assess. So looking at people's thoughts, uh, their physical behaviours, their conditioning, um, by all means looking at investigations like blood tests and scans, but screening, for, um, screening people for these factors broadly and then customising the factors we target um, according to the needs of each individual. So if somebody is highly stressed, not sleeping, very inactive, that should be a bigger part of our um, treatment approach than maybe their posture. Um, In another situation, if somebody has a way of moving or positioning their body that's very unhelpful and exposes their back to very heavy loads, that might be relevant. But again, it's matched to the needs of the person and their own, I suppose, individual presentation. And if we move on to the new content now, What's been on your mind and what are you sharing at the Physio First Conference in Nottingham, which is today, and which will have Paul Hodges as a guest in the 27 version? So um, one, I suppose there's two main messages I'm looking at today. One is the fact that as physiotherapists particularly, but healthcare professionals in general, we need to be flexible in terms of the skills we develop and then the skills we impart onto our patients. And then secondly, which I suppose would be uh, the topic for today is whether we're comfortable with the idea that back pain isn't something we should always try and prevent. Because um, I think there are some risks with trying to prevent all people ever getting back pain, even though that's something we think is very important in other infectious and malignant diseases. So far away, Kieran, because I would have thought that prevention might be a useful strategy, but you're not so sure? Yeah, and it seems like a counterintuitive position, so it will, it's probably worth, I suppose, um, discussing what we think about when we're, we mention prevention. So if you're looking at the prevention of an, a, a disease with significant mortality, be it a cancer or a, an infectious disease, you know, there's pretty much no debate there as long as we have effect, uh, evidence that we can prevent it. However, back pain is probably um, more comparable to things like sadness and tiredness and things like constipation and diarrhea, and that these are... Not in any way pleasant, nobody wants them, but they're things that almost everybody gets at some point in their life for a day or two or three. And if that's all it is, that's not a big deal. The reason when people talk about things like back pain costing millions and, you know, 600 million days lost of work, it's not because of a day or two of back pain. Um, And there's a big difference between getting a sore back for two or three days and being disabled and on long-term disability and not being able to participate in sport. In the same way, there's a difference between being sad and upset for two or three days and having persistent depression or having constipation for two or three days and having long-term irritable bowel syndrome. 
Um, the reason I bring that up is that it's um, it's important we get into our head that getting back pain isn't the problem. It's it not getting better and it lasting. That's the, the, the reason that people get into trouble. So if we look at athletes specifically, I think it's pretty normal for an athlete to get sore in some part of their body, their knee, their calf, their thighs. And in fact, if they no athlete on a team or a squad ever got soreness, there's a good chance they're not being conditioned hard enough. And we know from work like Tim Gabbard and, and many others that you've got to train hard to be able to perform well and to prevent injury. And if we go with the idea, particularly for the back, that it's important to prevent any soreness at all, we're likely to induce fear in coaches and in athletes about the ability of the body to tolerate that load. So um, if we look at, we'll say, how we deal with other um, aspects of the body getting sore, like hamstrings and, and calf muscles, what we would do over time is increase the load on that gradually and let the body adapt. Um, whereas, unfortunately, with back pain, when the back gets sore, we tend to sometimes panic and feel, well, the solution here for the back is to unload it and mind it and protect these tissues that we have an image in our head of, like discs and so on. And we don't do that with other parts of the body. And there's increasing evidence that that fear that we feel as clinicians is sometimes passed on to our patients. And you're not discounting the importance to check for red flags, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. So in, in, this, in the same way with any other part of the body, the first thing we'll do is we'll screen for, you know, anything serious, anything infectious and any specific pathology. Because, you know, if you're dealing with a range of athletes or other populations, there might be a very specific pathoanatomical factor or an inflammatory process going on. Um, but equally, the, the more we look at back pain, the less likely it is that it's explained in any major way by red flags. And in, unfortunately, it looks like the, the things we have for identifying red flags aren't particularly good. We should keep looking for them, but it looks like it's not going to be um, lead to a big change in our management. So in the majority of cases, when a clinician in the BJSM community gets a patient who they've cleared for red flags, they've got some back pain, what's your advice in terms of preliminary management and sort of your perspective? I think the first thing to, um, if we look at this issue of, of the person developing pain, is to reassure the person that this, this is not a, a big deal. Um, I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but it's important that we empathize with the athlete or person, but not induce fear in them, and to tell them that this is something that is understandable, and try and sit with them and try and understand why they got sore. So don't ignore their pain, don't panic about it, and try and assess what are the risk factors that developed uh, that caused this pain to develop. Is it a sudden increase in their training load in an athlete? And if it is, moderate that as you would with any other part of the body. But equally, um, look at other important factors. Their systemic health. What's their wellness been like in the last while? Their stress, their sleep, their recovery between training sessions, and other important factors. Their mental health um, and what they think is going on with their back, looking at family beliefs and, and other aspects. In other words, get to the root of what's going on in the problem, including screening for physical, pathoanatomical, but also these important social, psychological and lifestyle factors. And then once we've got to the root of what those factors are, it's not enough to tell them these are the problems, but to give them specific strategies that will address that. So it's no good telling somebody, you're stressed, calm down, you're sad, cheer up, but try and give them specific strategies and of course, exercise is going to be common to all of those factors. But somebody, it's, uh, so ex exercise is very useful, but it's important that the person understands why they're exercising. So if a person thinks they're exercising to strengthen this very vulnerable part of their body, I don't think that's a good message to give them. Whereas if we tell them, look, this exercise will help your back, yeah, that's fine. But also tell them that it also addresses these other factors, like exercise helps reduce your stress, helps improve your sleep, helps your mental health. It 
we can reinforce the idea that exercise is beneficial in many ways, physically and for and systemically, without giving them a reinforcement that their back and body is vulnerable and damaged. And just backing back a fraction in terms of you were saying try to find a cause. Now, what about in those cases where you can't find an obvious precipitating factor? What do you say to those patients? Um, I think in terms of trying to find an obvious precipitating factor, one of the things we've got to look at, I suppose, is um, trying to see if there's a pattern. So we'll say, I would have thought 10 years ago that a, an obvious factor meant a, a pain source, a disc, a muscle, or a traumatic event that happened. Whereas increasingly what we tend to do is get the person to maybe do a diary of their timelines. So looking from the last three months on a week by week basis, how did their back pain fluctuate? And did that fluctuate in conjunction with other variations in training load, sleep, stress, performance, and so on? Um, Bob Pike has one of those laws for adult learning that people don't argue with their own data. And so rather than me telling the person that I think, you know, stress is a factor in your back pain or sleep, getting the person to map out if these factors fluctuate with their pain is far more powerful in terms of the person um, believing it and that knowledge being embedded. Um, and if there's any doubt whatsoever that there's something else, something more sinister going on, never ignore that. Um, but if we look at the management of back pain as a whole, it's rare that we think the problem is not enough scans, not enough blood tests. So really get to the, you know, I suppose the, the hub of what's going on with their pain and again reevaluate that. Make sure that this story is fits with their pain rather than it being something that I give as a generic message. So then if I've looked at my diary and I've found some factors and I've come with this episode of back pain and I feel fairly comfortable that um, that we'll settle with the advice you give me, what are the next steps? So I suppose one step is to um, see what's modifiable and what isn't because um, unfortunately a lot of the time the risk factors we identify aren't all that modifiable or at least aren't modifiable in the short term. So if we look at the big prospect of studies, um, your socioeconomic status is a big predictor of, of back pain. You know, um, Gender might be um, having previous disabling back pain. But equally a lot of the stuff is. So looking at your, again, lifestyle factors, sleep, stress, activity levels, looking at how suddenly you fluctuate your training load, I would say that's modifiable but it's actually very hard to modify if you don't have a coach and, a, and a, you know the rest of that team on board. If you don't have the personality or if you can't shape the personality of the athlete because that athlete might have a, an all or nothing attitude to their training. So teasing out with them on a, on a list of, um, so we'll typically do a list of good for me and bad for me um, and get the athlete to write down what they think is good for me and bad for me um, and then try and get them to figure out, well, you're saying this is good. good. How do we get more of that? You're saying this is bad. How do we get less of that? And they'll often struggle with that. And the temptation, and I think the mistake I've often made is I give them the solution. And actually, that's not often very acceptable. And that applies to most of the things we do. If we look at even the choice of exercise, um, a lot of people will ask, well, which should it be? Should it be exercise A or B or C? And it looks like the big predictors of a person doing well is, well, will they do the exercise? And that's actually predicted by things like cost, preference, and access. So if, if I prescribe somebody an exercise, they'll do it if they can afford it, if they like it, and if it's available. But if I give them an uh, exercise they can't afford, send them swimming, but there's no pool for you know a 20-kilometer or 30-kilometer trip, and they never enjoyed swimming, they just won't do it. So teasing out that those st things of modifiable and not and then not giving on up on stuff just because it's hard and not giving up on stuff um, just because it'll take a period of time. So I had a, a young um, athlete just a couple of weeks ago and we did this approach of, you know, modifiable, non-modifiable. 
And actually what happened in the middle of it was a huge series of anger about these things like the coach pushing him and the coach not valuing him as, and the coach feeling because he got back pain that he wasn't trying hard enough and was trying to cheat, um, skip some training sessions and so on. Now, we needed to condition his back and we needed to kind of get him back in training, but it was important for him to be aware of how much that was stressing him. So he wasn't sleeping, but the problem wasn't, you know, a, a insomnia or a sleep disorder. The, sl- the, the sleep and the frustration was very much related to this breakdown in relationship with the coach. Um, and the solution there, as at least it looks like it's helped in the short term, is talking to the team physio who acted as a mediator and a go-between in terms of getting that relationship back on track. Because the coach... My, I felt didn't trust the athlete. The athlete definitely didn't trust the coach. Now, their rehab, if you looked at it in the gym, would just look like physio. They did some conditioning, they did some stretching, they got some sensible advice around exercise. But that would never have worked if we didn't get to the understanding of the, the breakdown relationships, I think. And just a practical um, point on that list, things that are good for me, things that are bad for me, how many items would there be on each side of the list and what are just a couple of ones that you would find... Um, are there regularly? Um, okay, so um, because we let the athlete develop the list, it varies a lot. We will try and prompt them. If they come up with one or two bad things, we'll try and prompt them. Um, but we generally give them a chance to kind of come up with some things. The things they say are bad for me um, are often inaccurate, we would feel, at the start. So they'll say, oh, well, exercise is bad for me. And, um, you know, um, playing sport is bad for me. It's damaging. But you almost have to let them express that and then challenge it over time and tell me, well, how was your back feeling when you stopped playing all winter? Oh, well, actually, it was worse. I was more stiff and challenging them in that way. But generally what tends to happen is that list includes a mix of traditional physical things, you know, oh, doing this exercise hurts it and doing this exercise and stretch helps it. But generally, once you tease it out, it it, it usually involves the bad for me being things like being tired, um, traveling too much would work, not having enough downtime and recovery, uh, feeling forced into doing things before my body is ready. And again, even if you look at that last point of being forced into training too hard, that might be objectively true. They might be, you know, training at an inappropriate load. Or it might just be that they feel it's inappropriate. But even if that's all it is, even if it's just a subject of perception, that's still a real risk factor in its own way. And um, the next step after that is after identifying the the bad for me aspects, what can we change in a traditional physio exercise thing? Is there something about the way they move? What can we change by getting them to re-engage with some strategies, stress management, better sleep habits, and so on? And then what's the stuff that's more messy? And that's where it gets hard. Are you dealing with people who have, they're not professional athletes, they have a full-time job? Um, The big picture stuff, relationship breakdowns, economic strains, and so on. And sometimes we get, we start to feel a little bit uncomfortable about these things. Um, but it's still part of our role not to come up with a solution, but just to talk through them. And if you want to take a, a leap at, we'll say, the role of counselling and psychotherapy, which is, you know, that's not my background. But they would say there's a lot of value in just explaining these things and talking them through and reassuring the person that that doesn't make them crazy. And is that tricky in a private practice appointment time schedule? It's very tricky, um, and and you know if you you want to look at you know trying to provide a sustainable business model, you got to charge for your time. Um, I'd say the biggest challenge is actually sometimes working in public hospital settings in a country like Ireland, where you've got a, nothing but a, a curtain between you and the next patient three feet away, and if you're going to talk about anything sensitive, that's not a, an environment that's conducive to that. Um, and I think there's a strong argument that what we should be doing is after we do a basic triage of a patient, we should have an estimate of how much time that person needs at their next two appointments, one or two appointments, and 
book in enough time to get to the bottom of their story but equally you got to charge for that time and I'm probably in a biased situation that I see people who are more chronic and more disabled so they're probably more willing to kind of try something different I think this is actually hardest when somebody's only about four to six weeks into their problem and they're still chasing a scan or a tissue diagnosis that will explain it all sometimes even though chronic pain gets a very bad name if somebody's had pain for 10 years and they've tried everything they're probably open to giving up on well I've had two MRI scans I don't need a third but if they're still waiting to get their scan that's a really tricky situation and as we bring this to a close Karen what thoughts do you have about the evidence to underpin this I think um, I think there's a lot to be gained from comparing the evidence for back pain to other conditions so if we look at the evidence for something like hamstring injury uh, there's very strong evidence from you know groups like um, Christian Thorberg and Per Holmick's group that if we condition the hamstring muscle it, it you know the recurrence rates are very low and you need a very low numbers uh, the numbers needed to treat are very low so we've got an example there of somebody that's got a hamstring injury it's verifiable on a scan the you know people who um, don't have a hamstring injury their scan looks normal and you condition that muscle it makes it really it improves the outcomes very 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 well in contrast, when you look at back pain, the evidence that any one type of exercise helps more than another isn't there. And I think that exp is explained by, number one, the scan doesn't match the presentation, unlike hamstring injury. You know, you don't see something that's clearly normal or abnormal. And number two, we're not dealing with just a tissue injury. Hamstring injury is localized, there's a clear onset, there's a mechanism, and it's, you know, it's easily verifiable. It's not a complex diagnosis. Back pain, it's, it can start as an injury, but it rarely stays like that. And I think, while I'm a fan of loading the body, I think if you look at the role of, for example, heavy load, strength training, and back pain, it helps the body physically, but I think a big part of it is probably driven by the fact that it's psychologically mediated and that if you can get somebody to lift heavy weights with their back, it's good for their back physically, but it's very hard for them to believe their back is damaged and vulnerable if they're able to deadlift, you know, a, a very heavy amount of weight in the gym. So I think we've probably got to think about doing some of the things we're doing, but trying to understand why they're helping. And I think while exercise is a huge part of the treatment we use, it isn't helping purely by improving VO2 max and improving, you know, their one repetition maximum strength. It's helping through a lot of the systemic effects on immune and endocrine and, and um, central nervous system function. So we can probably do the same things, but try, try and um, view how they work in a slightly different way. Thanks a lot for your time, Kieran. We'll leave it there. And thanks very much for having me. It's a great opportunity and um, I think the podcasts have been a huge um, resource for CPD among professionals across the globe. And remember, you can catch BJSM podcasts very easily through the mobile app. I hope you get the chance to have a physically active day and we look forward to your suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear on podcasts for the BJSM community. Thanks for listening.